0: I cannot wait to see you. Welcome back to Latina to Latina. On this podcast, I talk with Latinas about how they got to be so amazing. I was about 12 years old when the first edition of Latina hit newsstands in 1996. And I remember feeling like we, Latinas, had arrived. If you've ever read the magazine, then you can thank Christy Habagger for willing it into existence. Today, Christy's an agent at CAA, where she reps some of the biggest names in entertainment and runs the agency's multicultural business development. Christy, needless to say, is a visionary and a connector and very, very busy. When we sit down in her swanky L.A. office each time a phone rings right outside her door, I'm reminded how lucky I am to have Christy's undivided attention. Thank you for having us here in your office at CAA. You have movie posters, but the thing I am most curious about is who that little girl on that poster (laughs) is.
1: That is me when I was about four or five, and as is likely apparent to anyone who looks at the photo, my mother used to cut my hair.
0: Preciosa. Look at those
1: bangs. I know. She said it was crooked because I moved, but not sure she was a
0: talented hairdresser what did that little girl want for her life?
1: I was thinking about this a while ago. Somebody asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I remember thinking that I wanted to be a boss. (laughs) Yes. What a good answer. Well, because my mom, you know, this was a different era and she was worried about me being bossy. Right. And I was like, but
0: what if I want to be a boss? Which is good. I'm not necessarily a fan of banning the word. I I I like a bossy girl. I know. Well, we get things done. Mm Yep. 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 You go to Stanford Law. Mm -hmm. Why am I sitting at CAA in your office as an agent instead of some big corporate law firm? Well, a lot of
1: people go to law school because you can go right after undergraduate. And so for me, part of it was that it was a bit of a default graduate school. I went to UT Austin and got a really marketable degree in philosophy. And so (laughs) I was either going to open a philosophy store or go to law school. And while I was there, I had a great professor who became something of a mentor for me. And I'd taken a class called Corporate Governance and Social Responsibility. And I was there completely for the social responsibility part. (laughs) But I really liked corporate governance. Like understanding how businesses and corporations worked was really fascinating for me. And so with this mentor professor, he said to me, "You should think about learning more about business." And so I signed up for some business school classes at Stanford and I learned probably enough to be dangerous, you know, and I took some accounting and leadership and marketing and I was like, "Oh my gosh, I love this. I'm in the wrong school." And so that's an expensive I, mistake. It's a really expensive, and I'd borrowed so much money. And so I had worked on a business plan for a self-directed study program on a magazine that didn't exist yet, which was this magazine for Latinas. And another professor, a, a woman who was teaching at the business school, said to me, you know, this is a really good idea. You should think about doing this. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try and be an entrepreneur. And if I fail miserably... I can be a lawyer.
0: There's a piece missing in the story, which is whenever I read it, it's like you, so you you graduate from Stanford Law and then you like live in a tiny apartment and it's lean living and then there's a magazine. (laughs) Then there's a magazine. And there's, oh my gosh. So what happens in that period? Well, I really
1: did live on love and ice water for two and a half years. In California
0: or New York? Well, in
1: California for the first like year and a half and then New York. You know, people always tell you that networking is really important. And part of what networking is, is actually really just sharing your most vulnerable biggest dream with everybody you can, because you don't know who's going to have an opportunity or a connection that will be helpful to you. And so there was this classmate of mine from law school, and he had an aunt whose house in the Hamptons was next door to a woman named Jackie Leo. And Jackie was the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Family Circle. And she was friends with the number two editor at Essence, who was Stephanie Stokes Oliver. And I met, you know, my friend's aunt and her neighbor and her friend, Stephanie, who agreed to get me a meeting with the chairman of Essence. And that was my big break. You know, I had some sort of angel investors, but this was a real-life angel. This was a man who had 30 years prior started a magazine for African-American women. So I had, you know, 15 minutes with him. And I remember I sat down with him and I said, here's the thing. There are going to be more Hispanic women in the United States than there are African-American women in about 20 minutes. And we haven't had a magazine yet. And that's it. That's the pitch. And he was struck by that. And he promised to read the plan and he invited me back to present to his board of directors who made a modest investment to test with the option that they could invest if it went well. And we did a bunch of testing and it went really well. And so this it takes about a year and a half. And now I'm living very lean in New York. You're like, <laughs> because, How are you feeding yourself? Oh, I did like legal contract work. Okay. I did research for professors at Stanford after I graduated. I mean, I did like all kinds of things. You know, when you're doing this, every bit of money you raise or make, and I raised, you know, $50,000 from
0: a small investor, you know, every bit of money you put back in the thing, you don't pay yourself. I think back to it because I, I was a preteen and I remember that magazine coming out and it, it meant so much. I mean, it just, it, especially for me as an English dominant Latina, because there, there were magazines, they were just for Spanish language audience and for someone who was less acculturated.
1: Yeah, that's um, right.
0: And it w- was amazing. I, mean, I don't look like Jennifer Lopez, but to see Jennifer Lopez reflected back at me meant right. something. So we put Jennifer on the first cover because we thought she might she was gonna be to be the a next, thing. <laughs> next
1: big thing. Got that right. <laughs> One of the things that was really remarkable to me was to see her on a newsstand next to everybody else. But I will, I will tell you that it took me three years to get it off the ground. And there's this thing you think you're, you're, you know, you sort of set a goal and you think you're crossing the finish line, but like the truth is you're, you're just crossing the starting line. Like that
0: was the beginning, you know? And, and I was like, oh, now we got to do it again. For you, born. To a your biological mother is Mm -hmm. Mexican, Mexican American. Mm -hmm. Being adopted, yeah. Did you have any trepidation about stepping into a space that was defined by your Latina identity?
1: Oh yeah. No, I had my parents were incredibly supportive and loving and they wanted me to feel good about who I was. And as I got older, you know, I remember thinking at one point that I wasn't I didn't fit in anywhere. I didn't fit in like the Anglo world. I didn't fit in the Latino world. I kind of had that experience of with one foot in each culture that I think it turns out most of us have. And I had this idea at one point that I realized like, well, if other people don't see images of themselves in the media, well, they can go inside the house and see people who look like they do. Well, I didn't have that. And so I always wondered, Was I more acutely aware because I couldn't take that for granted in the same way? When did you know it was time to step away? So after the first, you know, 10 issues, you get it. After the first 50, you really get it, you know. And I wanted to do other kinds of storytelling because I had this really profound realization that the only people who read Latina were Latinas. (laughs) <laughs> it was just this like, like, oh, wait, I actually want other people to know who we are and to see what we're capable of. And I really wanted to do another kind of storytelling. Because the truth is, I didn't do it because I wanted to be in the magazine business. I did it because I wanted to tell our stories. And I felt like there was so much opportunity in like film and television. So, you know, for me, it wasn't a matter of like if, it was a matter of when. And after we sold, it was an easy sort of juncture. Not easy, but it was, a, it was a, a good juncture to do that. And I moved back to California in 2003 and worked on a movie called Chasing Poppy. And then I worked on another movie called Spanglish. As a producer. Yeah, as a producer. I thought that that being a producer was the, and it is to some extent, the analog to being a publisher. So you know, a publisher's job is to get all of the resources together so that creative people can do terrific storytelling. And I thought, you know, if I could be a producer, that would be the next step. The problem was for me to work on one movie for two years is really hard if your professional metabolism is accustomed to a new product every 30 days, right? So I loved, you know, development, but I hated production, which is a really big part of being a producer. Yeah, what does a producer do? So the director is like an editor, right? So the director is the creative storyteller and film is a director's medium. And so your job as a producer is to make sure that, you know, in the development to make sure that we had, um, you know, access to kind of getting the story right, right? Um, Everything from location scouting (laughs) to you know, figuring out how we can do this with uh, this kind of of talent to finishing the movie and marketing it. How do we find the right audience? How do we do all of that? I mean, it's really the business side of storytelling.
0: And through that process, is that how someone suggested to you that you be an agent? Yeah.
1: Well, I got to know a lot of agents through that process and coming out of it, I was really proud of Spanglish, but it was- Oh my God,
0: it is one of my favorite movies. It was a two year, you know- she does magic.
1: I know. She's she's so talented. But I really had no idea what I was going to do next. I knew I wanted to do something that moved faster. I knew some of the folks here at CAA, and they offered to create a role for me. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do that because it'll give me a good look at the whole industry, and I can figure out where I want to go. And here I am 13 years later. But I had no idea what an agent really did.
0: I don't th- don't think most people do. Like, yeah. What, so, what do they do? Well,
1: I used to tell my family that it was like a glorified temp agency. You know, you get people a job and then next year you got to get them another job. CAA had, I think, 23 non-white clients when I started because I did a sort of a census. Now we have 450, including 200 Latino writers, directors, actors, music artists. And so I decided that what I was going to do was actually change. I was like, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change the way the whole agency business works, <laughs> you know, naturally. Um, but I, you know, I came in here, I came <laughs> in Because I'm a here. boss. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm a boss, you know, that little girl was right. No, because I, I came in here and I was, I was struck by the fact that we didn't have a lot of diversity in the client roster, but it turns out that the way that people decide who they represent is actually who they feel passionately about and who they know personally and maybe someone with whom they've had a social relationship. And as it turns out, you need agents who look like the world if you want to represent the world because, you know, for for good and for bad, like women sign women, you know, as we got more women agents, we signed more women directors. You know, I work really closely with America Ferrera and Eva Longoria and Salma Hayek, and you know, I work with and Jane Rodriguez, and and we have decided that there's an opportunity to aggregate and make a a real focus out of representing these folks because, particularly as they become producers. So Salma Hayek has a deal at Lionsgate, um, Jen has a deal at NBC Universal, America has a deal at NBC Universal, Eva has one at Fox. Gina has one at CBS, like five Latinas who have producing deals now because I was like, we don't have the producers to actually change the kinds of stories we're telling. And so these women who are, you know, incredibly smart and incredibly hardworking can begin to be part of that pipeline. So that's been like a big Mm -hmm. focus of mine because what I can do to help the individual careers of one or two people, you know, you only have a certain amount of capacity. But if I could be part of catalyzing the whole industry to shift and move at scale, that's that matters a great deal.
0: For you as an agent, when you know the Sony email hack story unfolded, do you look at that and think, shit? Or do you look at that and think, finally, transparency? No, I. it's
1: actually usually pretty bad because we are all so ill-prepared for what we are up against here. And one of the things that is transformative, though, has sort of been, and I was one of the organizers of Time's Up this last year, sunlight is really good for that kind of thing, right? Where behavior that was tolerated or you thought you were alone suddenly finding out you're not or finding out that this is actually endemic to your industry is
0: great. Do you think there is a parallel for what for what we're now going through with times up and the light that that's shining on the challenges that women in the industry have faced that there will be something akin to that for the racial and ethnic complications of people yeah, in Yeah, I think, well,
1: one of the things that I'm really proud of is that, you know, when we got into a room for Time's Up, we thought, you know, if we get 20 women together and close the door, we're going to figure out something to do. And very specifically, we made it about half women of color. And the truth is you realize you can't solve one aspect of inequality without addressing the larger injustice. Again, we were like, why don't we change the way our business operates? You know, one of the things that I think is remarkable is that it's really, really clear to me that talent is equally distributed. Opportunity isn't. When you look at the numbers and you say, oh, women have directed 4%, of the thousand largest motion pictures in the last 10 years. Well, we clearly aren't 4% of the talent. (laughs) Like, I mean, you could argue maybe we're not 50% of the talent, but you can't tell me it's four, right? And so at the same time, when women of color have been excluded from all these, you can't tell me we're not representative of the talent. We're just not representative of the opportunities yet. Who do you think is underrated
0: Latina talent? Oh, my gosh. I think we're all underrated, Latina Talents. <laughs> Every single one of us is underrated. I mean. Well, underestimated for sure.
1: Underestimated. Although, I, you know, one of the things that I will say, and I work with a lot of women, you know, if you sort of think of like Salma and Jen and America and Eva and Gina, like pound for pound, they are smarter, tougher, harder working in part because they have to be nobody was going to hand them anything like nobody's going to hand them anything you know and i have a little bit of that too where i i've become accustomed to nobody making it easy for me and i assume nobody will and so i will outwork everybody you know i wouldn't trade it for anything in some ways because i feel like i have muscles because i struggled a little more i feel like i have resilience you know Tell me no. That's just where
0: we're starting. You know, no is where it starts. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in Pampers Swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance. Hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the elephant and Freddy the duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club.
1: Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the ball is filled. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Have you ever failed at anything? Oh, yeah, I fail all the time. Like what? Um. Well, I failed to go to the gym this morning., <laughs> uh, but I think there's a great opportunity in failure in you know i I always say like I don't fail. I either win or I learn, right? And if you can get rid of your dignity, right, and use every failure as an opportunity to learn because you're willing to ask people, the question is, what could I have done better? What didn't work for you here? All of those things I find to be
0: really, really. Easy to ask. I'm still not buying it. I'd like, so like, so like can oh you can you tell me about a time that oh, you failed? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, let's see. Um, you know, at one point I realized I'd hit up for Latina, I'd hit up 200 investors. I got five yeses. I got 195 no's. You could call each of those a failure, right? There are people that I'd like to represent that we don't represent. Uh, you know, <laughs> I've failed so far. You know, my job is one of persuasion, and I often fail to persuade people. And you know, if if I hadn't failed so much, the industry would look like the world, right? And it doesn't yet. Mm-hmm. So I've I feel like until that's righted,
0: I'm not done. You you said something earlier that I want to pick up on when you were talking about uh pitching Latina and how one of the things about networking is just being willing to be vulnerable and telling people yeah. what yeah. your biggest I at least, and I feel like part of this has to do with being raised in a, in a Latina household and in a household where, you know, my dad was raised by poor immigrants. Right. Like you did right. not ask for things. Right, And right. you certainly did not ask for help and you certainly were never vulnerable. Right. So everything you have just said, which I believe is antithetical yeah. to everything, everything I grew yeah. up believing. I,
1: and it's still hard for me. Like it's, I still work at being vulnerable, but one of the things about, Being super independent and kind of bootstrapping, whatever, is that I'm super self reliant. But that makes it really hard to have friends in deep relationships because great relationships require vulnerability. And what I find is that when you ask people for help, it makes them feel important and needed. And if you can kind of frame it as a way to connect with people, people generally are good, I believe. People generally want to help. But if they don't know how, because they don't know what you're dreaming of, it's really hard. Nobody wants to tell people what they aspire to because they don't want people to know when they didn't make it. But if you don't tell people what you aspire to, they can't help
0: you. It's easy to look at you and say, this is a person who has everything. And oh, no. yeah, I mean, oh, most, okay. people, most people who are like me, who are careerists, like we want to build something that outlasts us. Yeah. And you did that. Like, well,
1: let, I mean, I hope to be doing that. One of the things that I think is is remarkable is that there's your work, and then there's your life's work, right? And it's really easy to get caught up in the like frustrations of your work, like the thing I'm doing right now. The thing you have to remember is that it actually fits into a larger narrative about what's your life's work. Because I suspect that at the end of things, we're not going to measure our lives in money or titles or you know, any like jobs you had, you're going to measure it in, like the impact you had.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy you're doing this. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now the podcast is executive produced by Juleka Lantigua williams and me. Sound edited by Aluakemi Aladasui. Email us at ola at latinatolatina.com. Send us ideas for guests or talk to us about what's on your mind right now. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you. See you.